0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today, I'm excited to welcome Patrice Willoughby, Senior Vice President of Global Public Policy and Impact at the NAACP, the country's largest and oldest civil rights organization. Patrice has such an interesting background. Her career didn't start in politics. It started in music. Of all things. But a chance meeting with former Congresswoman Stephanie Chubbs Jones changed all that. In 2000, the Congresswoman hired Patrice to be her legislative assistant. Patrice eventually rose to chief of staff and chief counsel, a role she was fulfilling when tragedy struck. The Congresswoman died suddenly and unexpectedly, and Patrice had to lead the office through that heartbreak. When it was time to transition, Patrice stayed on Capitol Hill. She was asked to serve as executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus, where she was involved in the passage of the American Recovery Act, the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform, and the Affordable Care Act. In 2011, Patrice joined the Obama administration as deputy associate administrator for policy in the Office of Congressional and Intergovernmental Affairs at the General Services Administration. And after that, she spent 10 years in the private sector at two different government relations fronts. Patrice has been and remains deeply involved in work to improve the country and her local community, professionally and personally. Today, she works with numerous nonprofit organizations, including the Women's Institute for a Secure Retirement, N Street Village, and the New Leaders Council. I am so happy to be able to present my conversation with someone who I admire so much. Patrice and I recorded this episode on Friday, September 29th. I hope you like it. Patrice Willoughby. Welcome to Staffer.
1: Well, Jim, thank you. It's so great to be here.
0: I am delighted to be talking with you today. Um, As you may know, I like to start uh, at the beginning with my guests by learning a little bit about where they grew up and what their family was like. So can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. So I am from the Midwest and I grew up in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Um, My parents... uh, have Southern roots, and so Um, My dad was one of 15 kids um, from Georgia. My mom's family is from South Carolina. Um, And like many Black families, uh, they migrated to the North during the Great Migration. And I grew up um, in Cleveland Heights, which is an inner ring suburb of Cleveland. And it was one of the first well-integrated suburbs um, of Cleveland. And so um, I'm on the vanguard of those folks that grew up in an integrated community um, from kindergarten um, up until I graduated from high school.
0: Now, I know after high school, you went to college at Case Western Reserve, um, but your field of study was different from many people who end up working in government and politics. You studied music. And even afterwards, you earned a Master's of Arts from the University of Cincinnati. So Talk to us about your music passion and skill.
1: Well, you know, I was a musician before I went into politics. And music is, and the arts in general, were a big part of my family. My mother sang in a radio choir in the 1940s. And my sister was a music professor at Northwestern. Uh, My brother was a visual and graphic artist. And I started studying piano at six and then um, earned a music degree in voice and piano uh, from Case Western Reserve. And so I always thought that my career would be in the arts. And I was interested in what was then called multiculturalism, you know, and understanding cultural influences in music. So I went on and I got a master's degree in uh, arts administration and nonprofit management and spent some time raising money for cultural organizations um, before going to law school and and going into politics so music has always been a a big part of my life my niece right now is a broadway singer and actress and um it's kind of like the other part of my brain um that uh, gives great joy
0: oh incredible and are you still active in the arts today
1: Well, you know, I have, I, I, a career in politics is really all encompassing, but I have a piano in my basement and a headphones so that I can go down and play and sing as loudly as I want. And very few people can hear me.
0: (laughs) Oh, I love it. Um, So how did you, you went to law school. How did you come to politics? How did this become your career?
1: Well, you know, I think that the parallel to the arts is that social justice and community engagement has always been a part of my family's history and involvement, um, really from the ground, the grassroots level. Um, You know, mom and dad always participated in campaigns. Uh, When I was 18, my dad took me to get registered to vote. Uh, They were active in local politics. And, you know, sort of the 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 connection is that I was um, working as a fundraiser um, in the arts and I was working with a lot of lawyers and began to see some of the structural inequities that were present in the community that I came from. Um, and black people that I interacted with and sort of the larger corporate community. And that's what spurred me into going into law school because I really wanted to know more. It was intellectual curiosity about, you know, what are uh, the structures that create advantage and disadvantage? And, um, you know, that is really what led me into politics.
0: So as I understand uh, your first job in politics, and this might be wrong, but you came to work on, on Capitol Hill for Congresswoman Stephanie Tubbs-Jones. And I had um, the great honor of being able to work on Capitol Hill at the same time. So I got to see her in action. I certainly did not know her the way you knew her. But I wanna talk about her because she was a member whose passion and intellect and humor and warmth made her beloved. Staff loved her, loved hearing her, loved engaging with her. And members loved her on both sides of the aisle. And she was a trailblazer in her own right, the position she held before she got to Congress. She was an elected judge in the state of Ohio. She later ran and won the position of Cuyahoga County prosecutor, becoming the first African American prosecutor in Ohio history. When she ran and won her seat in the House, she became the first African American woman to serve in the Ohio delegation. And later, when she became a member of the House Ways and Means Committee, she was the first African-American woman to ever serve on that powerful committee. So she was a force. But can you talk about her, knowing her as well as you do? Like, what what should others know about someone who was so impactful with her life?
1: So Congresswoman Tubbs-Jones, Stephanie Tubbs-Jones, was one of the foundational people who have shaped my life and career. I learned so much from her and I will always be incredibly grateful to have had the opportunity to work with her for nine years um, because of all of the, the factors that you have noted. Um, she was, I, and I often wonder what she would think about the state of politics today because while she was extremely principled in her belief in equity and fairness, she was extremely open minded as well and would always have conversations to learn about issues that weren't necessarily aligned with her personal political leanings. And I think that that um, ability is something that is really lacking in politics today because. It made her take uh, stands that were very principled, but then grounded in good policy as well. And what I learned from her is that good policy comes from all over the place. No one has um, a monopoly on ideas. Um, And that is how we uh, attempted to work within the House of Representatives. And I think that's what made her so beloved. Um when she was served on ways and means you know we argued about that positioning for a while and, and one of the things that I loved about working with her is that she encouraged a very vigorous exchange of ideas you know and um we'd close the door and you know um some members of congress want fealty from their staff she really wanted you to bring your best intellect and your best ideas and so we'd close the door and you know duke it out on ideas And she wanted to be on the Judiciary Committee at first. Um, And we were talking about, you know, how to have an impression and improve the lives of people. And she came around to uh, want to be on Ways and Means because the tax code is so instrumental in wealth creation and creating advantage and disadvantage. And so that's an example of the type of person that she was. She would always reach across the aisle. Um, and did a lot of bipartisan legislation, but at the same time, very much stood um, on the side of of equity and fairness. And then at the end of the day, at the end of the week, um, you know, would leave town and go home. And it was her greatest joy to spend time with her family and friends and her husband and her son, uh, Mervin, who is now um, well into his career and a a dad uh, who I'm still connected with um, here in Washington.
0: Oh, that's great. So you met uh, the congresswoman in Philadelphia, but you shared this history with Cleveland. So how did did coming from Cleveland uh, shape your decision to get into politics?
1: Well, you know, we are all connected. So, you know, when my dad was a realtor in Cleveland, he really focused on um, getting black families to buy homes and one of his one of the families that he sold to was Andrew and Mary Tubbs who were stephanie tubbs jones parents and so i did not know her but uh, my mother and father knew her, and my sister knew her. Uh, and I met up with her in Philadelphia when she had come to do a lecture at a college where my sister was teaching. And we connected at that point and had long discussions about um politics and about the courts, because um, she and my sister were not able to get together. My sister asked me if I would um, spend some time with her, which, you know, I did as a favor to my sister. And then we ended up having a long conversation about the courts.
0: Incredible. Um, Now, you started working for the Congresswoman as a legislative assistant, and then you rose to legislative director. And you were eventually her chief of staff and chief counsel. What was it, do you think, that um, the congresswoman valued in you to keep elevating you in, in positions of, of greater and greater responsibility?
1: Well, one of the, the things that I tell this to young staff now, it is the benefit of being well-rounded. I think young people today sometimes come to politics from one perspective or, or they've known that they want to be in politics or they're afraid to make mistakes. I kind of stumbled into politics as my um interest and my... um experience grew. And I think that she valued that in me, in that um, I had strong organizational and management skills from my master's, but also um, the law degree and the um, analytical framework of looking at uh, issues um, and understanding both the law, the policy, and the equities behind them. Um, I did stumble into my role because Uh, The congresswoman had come to Philadelphia. I was clerking for the the Court of Common Pleas in Philly. And um, she came to Philadelphia, um, and I connected with her there, and I ended up spending time with her in Philadelphia. And at the time, I had been writing a lot of opinions uh, about young black and brown men who were criminally involved. But all of the fact patterns of the cases involved young people who had come from disadvantaged backgrounds and then they met with um, uh, poorly resourced communities and then they made bad decisions. And Pennsylvania at the time was a three-strikes state. And so um, these young men, and it was case after case, by the time they were in their early adulthood, they were already facing 30 years to life because mm. of drugs uh, Drug involved um, criminal activity. And so when Stephanie came to Philly, I had been writing opinions about all of these cases. Um, It was weighing very heavily on my spirit because of um, the disadvantage they had come from and then the options that they chose. And we ended up talking for about five hours about it. And I didn't know that that was actually a job interview. Um and then she reached out to me a couple months later, and she had a she you know she said, "I don't know if you've ever thought of coming to to d c, but I have an opening on my staff, and um you know, could really use um, someone." Um, you know, with your ideas. And actually, my first chief of staff was Secretary Marsha Fudge from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Secretary Fudge had worked for Congresswoman Tubbs-Jones in the prosecutor's office in Cleveland. And so um, Secretary Fudge then left and went back to uh, Warrensville Heights where she ran for and was mayor uh, for a number of uh, terms. And then we worked together together Uh, I, as a staff person, and she is the mayor uh, in order to improve conditions for her community there before she um, uh, assumed the role of uh, Congresswoman after Congresswoman Tubbs-Jones' death. So it's all very, you know, connected. And I, um, um, you know, know that uh, Congresswoman Tubbs-Jones philosophy is reflected um, in all the excellent work that she and Secretary Fudge did. And Secretary Fudge has carried it even much further in her role as um, at HUD.
0: Yeah, I did not uh, realize that about Secretary Fudge and and her background. You know, you mentioned Congresswoman Tubbs-Jones' passing, which was tragic and sudden. Uh, For those who don't know, uh, she was driving and she had an aneurysm. Um, and the car you know, pulled off to the side of the road. She was later found there um, and, and unfortunately passed away a short time afterward. You were the chief of staff at the time and had to lead the office during that time of heartbreak. So can you talk about what that experience was dealing with your own you know, loss and, and heartbreak while also having to the office functioning for a constituency that was still relying on it, even though the member had passed away?
1: Well, you know, congressional staff are do so many things, you know, and I think that uh, going into that role where, you know, you are um, – um, it's a a really selfless role, and it's also a great honor in that um, it sort of pulls all of the skill sets that you have out of you. And when I look back on that time, I really don't know, you know, um, I don't remember much of it. And I think a lot of it is uh, the shock of, of losing someone that you care about a great deal. But what's in front of you is the thing that's important. And um, and so from my perspective, we had 22 staff people who were relying on having some stability um, in their lives and in, um, in a time of great uncertainty. Um, the House of Representatives and uh, then Speaker Pelosi was very supportive, um, as well as all of the um, the supporting mechanisms of the House. I didn't understand until I experienced it, that there really is an infrastructure when a member of Congress dies in office that just clicks into place. And uh, there is meeting after meeting because a member has a certain level of um, uh, of rank that they're accorded because of their um, status as a member of Congress. And so you've got the military that also Um, swings into action in planning the memorial service for that member. Um, And then there are the needs of the staff to be attended to in helping people find jobs um, and keeping measures steady for the constituents who are at once grieving, but then also have very real needs that continue regardless of the grief of the staff and of the chief of staff. And so um, we had a very cohesive staff. Um, We were in the habit of having um, weekly staff meetings. Um, When video conferencing um, came online in the house, we were one of the first Offices that implemented it and that we had a big um, video conferencing system both in our um, Cleveland office and in our Washington, D.C. office. And so we'd get together weekly and everyone could cast eyes on each other and have the opportunity uh, to see each other in in real life. And so, you know, we pulled together um, and um, just spent a lot of time. um, We were able to help people get landed in, in new positions. Um, and then, you know, the house was really wonderful as well. I don't remember, I see the pictures of it, but you know, I, I don't remember, um, a lot of that time, but I do remember that things just continued to click along. Um, I actually dealt with my own grief, you know, much later. Um, you know, because grief is a sort of a sneaky thing in the way that it sneaks up on you. But, you know, Congresswoman Tubbs-Jones remains with me and sometimes I see things that they rem- that remind me of some of the issues that we dealt with and I, I do wonder, you know, how she would um, think of them now um, and the guidance that and the things that I learned from her were instrumental in how I've um, uh, continued on in my own career.
0: That's such a good point about bosses, you know, members who inspire you in addition to, you know, manage you and for whom you work, because the lessons that they impart to you really do stick with you. And you find yourself putting yourself in their shoes or in these old shoes you used to wear and think, what would they do? What would they think? Because it helps you reach the right conclusion if they are people who are meritorious, right, of your respect and affection.
1: Absolutely. And it's it's all a continuation. So when you have the benefit of having um, a good boss and a good mentor – um, you know, you really incorporate um some of their philosophy as you develop your own intellectual framework. Um, and what's so um amazing about the role of being a chief of staff is, you know, Congresswoman Tubbs Jones was mentored by um, Congressman Lewis Stokes, um, because she took the seat from him and she mentored um Congresswoman now Secretary Marsha Fudge. Um, who also mentored a uh, current Congresswoman, Chantelle Brown, um, who now represents the same district. And so we've had um, this transfer of philosophy, public interest, and really the goal of serving the people that you can see now through four and five different people who have served the constituents of the 11th district of Ohio and with secretary fudge, the entire nation. And, um, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of the people who have come before us. And I think that, um, that is something that staff and former staff learn and bring into all of the roles that they, um, um, occupy in both the public and the private sector um, when they've been a congressional staff person.
0: I love hearing about that family tree because that really is such a part of, of politics and being a staffer. Um, and it, it goes from member to member sometimes. And sometimes it's lateral with staff looking out for one another. And, and something that I want to ask you about is being a staffer of color. Um, you know, the fact is there were probably many rooms, many tables that you were at and representing your boss needed to be heard where perhaps those you know others around the table weren't hearing. Right. And how did you um, get into some of those rooms? Right. That weren't necessarily inviting. How did you make your voice heard when it wasn't being heard? And what Advice do you give to other staffers of color?
1: This is, you know, um, this continues to be, uh, you know, an issue. And I, I, I talk with a lot of uh, young black women now um, about it. And, you know, people are encountering the same, although there's a larger cohort, some of the same dynamics that um, I encountered when I um, came to the Capitol Hill And when I came to Washington, it was um, late 99, early 2000. There were, uh, when I became a chief of staff, it was 2003. And I think that there were four or five of us who were black female chiefs of staff at that point. And we all knew each other. And we would, um, you know, one, uh, two now um, are still on the Hill um, and are still close friends Um, One is deceased and another uh, works in the private sector. And we would gather at the Library of Congress to um, commiserate, uh, exchange best practices, um, sometimes just to decompress. Because when you're in the situation of being the only person of color in the room, you think about it, but you don't think about it. You think about it as a staff person in terms of that you have a job to do and you have a constituency to represent. And so what I always encourage young women today is, first of all, know your issues and know your craft very well, because you will need to be better prepared than everyone else in the room. That is unfair, but it's a reality. And so you have to be able to multitask, to know uh, your issues well enough so that you're not grasping for the ideas, uh, the theses of things that you want to discuss and that you want to assert in a meeting. Second of all, the thing about stress um, of being the only person of color in the room, is that um, it often allows you to just get over yourself if you have a focus on uh, the goal that you have in mind. Um, But there is um, the fact that um, of of getting comfortable with discomfort. When you become comfortable with the discomfort of being the only person that looks like you in the room— you realize that that can also be a source of power and of strength because just your presence in the room means that people will pay attention to what you have to say. And so being able to assert yourself well um, is uh, very important in, in accomplishing those goals, whatever you have laid out in front of you. But it's not a time to to sit back and to shirk. And that is one thing that, you know, I learned from all of the people in my lives who have had those roles. So, you know, my dad was one of the first, um, black realtors in Cleveland. Um, you know, my, um, my boss, Stephanie Tubbs Jones was, you know, uh, the first black woman on ways and means and the youngest, um, uh, judge, uh, and, uh, DA and black woman in Ohio politics. Um, Everyone has had to be a first in some way. And, you know, understanding that you have the responsibility of carrying forward um, is, you know, it's an honor, but it also gives you a unique perspective in order to advance the interests of the people who are who are uh, coming behind you.
0: Mm -hmm. After you left Congresswoman Tubbs Jones's office, you became uh, executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus, which has, you know, such an important history in the House of Representatives and such an important role in the House of Representatives. You became the executive director right after uh, President Obama was elected. So first black president. Um, you are you, the executive director of the CBC. How did you you know, um, manage the CBC at a time of both great history, great opportunity, you know, such an exciting moment, Um, clearly wanting, you know, President Obama and this new Democratic uh, majority to succeed while also making sure that those successes included priorities of the CBC that predated, right? The, The majority predated President Obama, how did you and the and the other and the members of the CBC navigate those uh, two important goals?
1: Well, you know, the caucus at that point had forty-two members, and so I used to say that I have forty-two bosses and their staff. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was, it was a wonderful experience. You may recall that during that time, that was when the economy was crashing.
0: Oh, yes, I recall. And,
1: um, yeah, I know you (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, you know, it was, um, it was, that time was really fraught because, um, we had, um, all of the economic issues that were going on. Um, we had to, um, work quickly on the Recovery Act, And then it was Dodd-Frank financial reform. It was the Child Nutrition Bill. It was the Black Farmer Settlement. Um, In 2010, it became the Affordable Care Act. And then um, the earthquake in Haiti in January of that year. And so in succession, there were many, many different things that um, were taking place. Uh, What I learned from that experience, first of all, working for the caucus and um, I still maintain very close connections with uh, CBC members. Um, it was a history lesson uh, listening to people like Mr. Clyburn and Mr. Thompson. Um, Mr. Clyburn, in particular, has such a historical view on the history of politics, of government, and racial politics in this in this country. He's a historian, and Mr. Thompson is. Um, not only substantive, as you saw during the January 6 hearings, but also a master tactician in terms of politics. 42 members of Congress have 42 different opinions of what should be done. And the Congressional Black Caucus then as now was not monolithic. Um, And so there is no focus on You can't make everybody happy, and it's it's not the point of getting everyone to agree on everything. What you can do, and what I learned as a staff person, is you can create the environment in which people have trust that you are working on their behalf to allow them to work to their um, best ability within the caucus framework and so the caucus then is now utilized task forces um, that were focused and, and aligned on, in terms of uh, committee jurisdiction. And so not everyone would do everything, but groups of members would push forward on different priorities. And there was a great deal of trust that that coalition, whatever it was, was working to their best ability on behalf of the caucus. Um I learned as a staff person that transparency was very important. Repetition was very important. Uh, providing everyone with the same information at the same time and repeating it, not providing different messages to different people, no matter how much pressure or stress, People might want to impose on you as a staff person because you cannot play favorites if you are managing um, a group of people that all who are who are all smart and all have different capacities and different interests. Um, At the same time, there is a leadership structure with the chair, which was Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who I worked for, and the executive committee. That would work with Congresswoman Lee to uh, represent the uh, wider range of interests of the caucus. Once they arrived at a consensus as a leadership structure um, with um, me supporting them as a staff person, then it was my job to effectuate that decision, those decisions. And, um, you know, because someone's got to lead at the end of the day. And then, um, you know, when people had trust that we were working on their behalf uh, and they understood that we were working transparently, um, you know, it was it was a not an easy experience, but one that was very, very fulfilling. The dynamic between the administration and the caucus is that President Obama, as the first black president, knew that he represented the entire country. The caucus wanted specific Uh, measures that were targeted at Black Americans. I still agree with uh, that perspective because we understood that Black America was coming from a a position of an absence of equity and really needed um, a specific focus. But, you know, we negotiated, we had um, a good working relationship and we uh, we were agreeable even when we disagreed on the the thing uh, to to move forward on. And so um, I then went into the Obama administration after I worked for the CBC. And so you know that is a lesson for staff that you know this is a very small ecosystem, and you will have disagreements, but it's important to understand that you will work with the same people over and over again. And so it's it's really important to maintain the, the relationship, even when you don't agree on the substance.
0: That's such a good point. How you work is even more important than what you work on. You know, to the your points about having expertise and relationships and just the long view of being hard on problems and not on people, because... I it really that. is. A, it is a community that, right, you're going to work with over and over in different uh, capacities. And I, w- I want to ask you about um, your next role in the Obama administration in just one second. But regarding the CBC, for those who haven't worked on Capitol Hill, there a- there actually aren't that many meetings where members of Congress are meeting with each other. There are formal times, like on the House floor during a vote, they're voting and then they're chatting with one another between votes. There are committee meetings, right, where they're interacting with their fellow committee members. There are caucus meetings that don't happen all that frequently. That's typically once a week. And then there are subsets of meetings. You know, leadership meeting will meet daily and other other caucuses will meet. But the CBC meeting, it was a lunch, right? I think it happened Wednesdays at lunchtime.
1: It was Wednesdays, Wednesdays in room HC5 in the Capitol it used to
0: be. <laughs> right. Down in the basement of the Capitol, which was, by the way, not not a very big room for all these members to get together and have lunch. But it was, it had, I only got to go once. And that was when a member I was working for was running for leadership. And they brought in each candidate to to hear, which it was sort of a, a unique meeting and it, it, not a representative sample, but it had the reputation of having a different feeling from other meetings in terms of the warmth and candor and camaraderie, um, in addition to the substance that had to get discussed. But can you take people inside that meeting?
1: Sure. Um, So the weekly CBC meeting is the opportunity uh, for members to discuss issues, uh, strategy on issues, um, both um, within the larger framework of Congress, but also within their committees and to educate each other on things that they're working on, um, both within Congress and also within their own districts. Picture, if you will, a horseshoe uh, shape, square horseshoe, you know, like a, like a donut. And so everyone is uh, has an equal say, you know, in the meeting. The chair is at the, you know, sort of the top of the horseshoe. And then every member has responsibility for sponsoring the lunch. And so there are some preferred menus. I remember when Senator Cory Booker, um, after I'd left, um, was uh, introducing uh, vegan food to the uh, lunch and did a video about it, which was very, very funny. um, Because people had different opinions about his (laughs) menu choices. Um, But, you know, the first part of the meeting— They do get lunch, Um, they um, check in with each other, and then there's always an agenda that um, we have put together with the chairwoman and the executive committee. Um, Members would have the opportunity to um, add to that agenda every week, and then issues are discussed within the context of uh, the House legislative calendar and, um, you know, current Uh, issues within Congress. And so a lot of the strategy around the Affordable Care Act um, would take place, uh, for example, both during the uh, Wednesday lunch meetings, but also late in the evening sometimes as well, when we would uh, find a committee room for, you know, additional follow-up, depending on what was going on. You know, it is an amazing review of history. It is a learning lesson. There are usually um, only the staff of the Congressional Black Caucus itself. We all sat on the staff of Congresswoman Barbara Lee. The staff that I worked with are have all gone on to do great things. Um, one of them now, Irene Marion, is the head of civil rights at the U.S. Department of Transportation, and she was the director of coalitions. And then Joni um, Palmer, Uh, who's now Reverend Gioni Palmer, has finished um, theology school, and he's now uh, an associate pastor as well as an advocate, still very close friends with them. And so we would would really staff the meeting. We would take notes. Uh, We would, um, if a subject matter was on the agenda, which we didn't know about. We would ensure that the correct staff person was in the room or was there to provide insight uh, to explain, um, you know, any of the technical details that needed to be discussed. And then, um, and then members would disperse, you know, uh, following the staff meeting. Um, that uh, I would have a staff a meeting with the staff of Congressional Black Caucus members to disseminate to them the top lines and the do's and the get backs from the member meeting. Um, Very important because as staff, you know who's got to get into the nuts and bolts of like carrying forth on the decision making. So uh, that is what we, that's what we always made a a practice of doing. And I think that that's what the caucus now has a, a bigger staff, but it's still the practice of doing.
0: Well, it was it was rarefied air to be in that room that you got to be in uh, on a weekly basis. And and as you say, it was history in the making, you know, just really exciting to to watch it all. You know, the intensity, the the conversations, the points of view, the rivalries. Right. I mean, all yeah. of those things come into play.
1: All of those things, because these are human beings. I mean, it. it you know, I look at, you know, this work as these are. You know, ordinary people doing extraordinary work, and they bring their individual um, interests, their passions to it. Um, at the end of the day, they are people. And you know, people are are not cookie cutter, right? So there's the issue to be resolved. but then there's also all of the personalities, um, all of the you know, the interests, the you know, the passions of folks. Um, but I learned so much from them, and, you know, it was really, you're right, it, it was rarefied air and it's uh, an honor to be able to observe it because you really learn um, what's important and what isn't important in decision making um, and um, and how to be, how to communicate better, you know, what issues are really important, how an issue can turn, you know, based on the persuas- persuasiveness of uh, the person presenting it really the importance of our institutions uh, like Congress, which, you know, I don't think there's enough appreciation for how important our institutions of government really are um, in protecting and, and advancing, um, you know, all of us, uh, everyone, all of the American people.
0: Boy, you said a mouthful there. Um, let me ask you about the next uh, institution you work for. So, you know, as mentioned earlier, you went to the Obama administration and you became deputy associate administrator of the General Services Administration, where you oversaw the Office of Congressional and Intergovernmental Affairs. So, two questions for you: For those who are not aware of the GSA, what does the GSA do? <laughs> the and she- <laughs> then, <laughs> and number two, what did you learn about Congress from this new position? Right, you moved down the street. What did you learn? You had a different perspective on Congress. What did you learn from that experience?
1: I think that any staff person who works in Congress should try to go and work at an agency as well. I mean, you gain an appreciation of our uh, system of government when you work uh, in two branches. You know, I had the benefit of of clerking for a local court system in the Wisconsin Supreme Court as well. And so, you know, all of these... um, Branches of government are really um, interrelated and have a unique role. Um, GSA is the biggest agency that nobody knows about. Um, They are really the back office for the U.S. government in that they implement the policy um, that frames out uh, government contracting as well as IT, the policies really that all federal agencies follow. And they're important. Uh, they also manage the federal real estate portfolio, um, all of the federal billings, the courthouses. And the reason that they are so important is because the private sector really follows um, what the government market often does. And so GSA, as this agency that no one pays attention to, has an outsized role in really shaping uh, the U.S. economy in ways that are really just undetectable. Um, So, for example, GSA sets per diem rates for travel, and often companies will peg their per diem rates for their employees to travel based on the federal per diem rates or the reimbursement, what what employees are able to spend when they travel. That has a huge impact on the travel and tourism industry throughout the entire country. The same thing for the uh, Federal Acquisition Service, which manages all of federal contracting except DOD contracting. But DOD and the FAS, they mirror each other in the way that the private sector contracts with the federal government um, to buy goods and services. And so what I learned from GSA is one the process of federal oversight is really important because Congress and the agencies should ideally work together very closely, and it's important for Congress to have an oversight over executive branch agency budgets. Ideally, they work together to effectuate um, the interests of the American people. Um, I learned that um, sometimes those relationships are well-managed and operational. Sometimes they are contentious. When they're contentious, it doesn't serve anyone. But I gained a great respect for the GSA in that, you know, in federal agencies, executive branch agencies, the employee base often has worked at an agency for 15, 20, 30 years, the average age of a congressional staff person is in their late 20s and they are generalists. And so it's gaining that type of expertise and insight from executive branch personnel is really important in order to understand how to make the wheels of government operate more smoothly. And GSA in its role has an impact on almost Everything that we do in the private sector, along with its implementation of policy that um, the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, um, as an extension of the White House, actually uh, puts forward. And GSA implements a lot of that policy across the entire federal enterprise.
0: I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the staff at the agencies and their expertise because it is a national treasure, and to something you said earlier, the you know there's just this declining appreciation for government generally, people who work in government and and I and I understand the dynamics around that, but there is something so important that people should um, appreciate about their country, which is the people who work in these agencies all across the country for decades, that expertise, is incredibly valuable and, in some ways, irreplaceable. Meaning, you can't just take someone who has worked in an agency for 25 years and replace them with somebody who has five years of experience. And, right? I mean, it's just... It's just impossible.
1: Yeah, no, there's no substitute for it. And these are, you know, civil servants. And, you know, a large of the uh, a a lot of the federal um, workforce is also black African-American because the federal government has given more equitable opportunities to black Americans in many cases than the private sector has. And, you know, I have a deep appreciation for that. Um, And I think that, you know, demonizing the federal workforce really demonizes um, uh, the self-sacrificing, highly evolved, highly dedicated work of civil servants across the country who really do their job. They don't want any accolades. They are in public service because they understand the importance of the job that they do for people. And having them demonized or made a target or described as a monolith, as if what they do does not have value, is very detrimental because there are um, literally thousands and thousands of people across the country who are ensuring that all of the processes of our government that we don't even see go forward, um, you know, without a hitch. And so I I really, um, you know, appreciate that question because I think that we need to do a lot more to appreciate federal workers and the things that they do uh, for us.
0: I, I want to pick up on, on something that you've talked about during this interview um, because it relates to your current work. Today, you are the Senior Vice President of Global Public Policy and Impact at the NAACP, which is you know, the foremost uh, institution dedicated to ending racial inequality in the country in all of its forms, wherever it may exist. Can you talk to us about, first, your day-to-day? Like what, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big portfolio. How do you approach each day, each week, and what are you working on?
1: Well, you know, service is the rent that we pay for being here. And I, I go to the book of Timothy, um, you know, to whom much has been entrusted, people will demand the more. That is a Bible verse that has mm. framed out um, a lot of my thoughts about about service. And I think that um, I came to the NAACP. My, well, first of all, my family was always a member of the NAACP, and I grew up reading the Crisis Magazine when I was a kid. After um, after I left government, I was in the private sector for a while. And then um, when George Floyd was murdered, I found myself in midlife knowing that I, for the first time for a long time, I had the ability to have a choice about what I wanted to do uh, and that I wasn't like economically strapped. And I decided that I wanted to go back into public interest work. And the opportunity came up at the uh, NAACP which has had a role for 114 years, being at the forefront of protecting Black Americans and other people of color, the LGBTQ community as well, and really advancing equity in the United States. My day-to-day is everything. Um, we have components that are campaign and field and that we are nonpartisan, but we say we're not blind. And we do a lot of civic engagement work in encouraging uh, voter voter registration, uh, getting out the vote, civic education, uh, as well as the policy work that we have ramped up to um, develop legislative priorities and to share them out with. Congress and across the states and into our local units to enable our membership which is about 2.9 million to advocate on their own behalf we the strength of our organization is that we have people and we have a long history of people being involved in their local communities 2200 units and um, in almost every state of the Union and so those local units are often the first two, Help When people run into trouble, uh, they're also now at the forefront of all of the anti-equity legislation that is popping up around the country in trying to erode voting rights, in trying to limit the ability of people uh, to have a say in enhancing equity. The The direction of the country is that people want to have a more open society. It's only a small group of extremists that want to get rid of immigrants, get rid of people of color who are racist, but they are the most vocal. I mean, the majority of the country is center right or center left. And so just like the Congressional Black Caucus, most of the members now represent districts that are not majority minority. The Congressional Black Caucus um, and the NAACP represent huge swaths of the country where there are black people, but lots of other people too, lots of other people who have an interest in equity and fairness. And so we are um, acutely focused on um, combating racism and discrimination and bias wherever it exists, um, and also enabling the ecosystem where people have the ability to work on their own behalf um, within their states and in their, their local communities.
0: So what is the hardest part about your current work and what is the best part? (laughs)
1: <laughs> the best part is the people that I work with, people are so passionate and, you know, just like public servants in government, they do a lot um, and go well way and beyond. I mean, when I look at what our president and our chief strategy officer do um, when I'm tired, I know that they're working even harder than I am, you know, um, and my colleagues are, are fantastic. You know, the hardest part is that there is that there's an overending Um, range of needs. And and the Bible says this as well, the poor will always be with you. Um, But I also think that we have the opportunity to really alleviate suffering and to create a, a better Uh, society. I mean, the constitution didn't originally envision people who look like me. Um, but I think, and I, and as the older I get, the more idealistic I, I become that, you know, it's really critical for all of us to work together toward creating that more perfect union and ensuring that the benefits of our society and of, of, um, the United States really go to everyone so that we have enhanced opportunity, uh, equity and, um, that people can benefit from uh, the work that they do, you know, really uh, live um, as, as, as it, our Constitution you know, envision them living. So that's, that's what keeps me motivated.
0: That is one of the most beautiful descriptions of public service uh, and the enterprise that, you know, we're engaged in that uh, I think I've ever heard uh, on this show. It, I, I want to be respectful of, of your time. Uh, I do have a few more questions for you, however. Sure. A couple of questions that i like to ask folks uh, that are recurring questions um, are, one, can you tell us about a time that you made a mistake? And what was it? What did you learn from it?
1: I learned, I made a big mistake when I was a chief of staff, and I learned a lot about grace from Congresswoman Tubbs Jones. So, you know, I... Um, congressional offices send out what's called franked mail which is the congressional newsletter and um there's a different timeline um on in a year in which there is an election versus when there's not an election and i um i was a new chief of staff and i had sent out one newsletter um on the regular schedule and i didn't realize that there was a blackout date that was would affect my timeline and um, on in during an election year. And so in that election year, when it was more critical than ever for the constituents to hear from the congresswoman, I missed the deadline. And so we were unable to send out the newsletter. And I remember the moment when I recognized that we would not be able to send out uh, the newsletter. And I, I was like physically nauseous, you know, and um I told her that uh, afternoon, and I remember uh, she looked at me, and then um, I apologized, and she didn't say anything except, "Well, you you know you won't miss the deadline, you know, the next time around," uh. and she let it go at that. And I learned about grace because this is her political career; she knew that it was an honest mistake. Um, and that I was really trying, um, but it was just, you know, and she could have destroyed me at that point, but chose not to. And it taught me a lot about grace and and just the value of treating people well.
0: Yes. Well, she it, it speaks to her character that she would offer that. It's also, I think, a reflection of her knowing you. Like good staffers are really hard on themselves. You know, I mean, w- you let something like that eat you up. And so piling on is, is unkind. <laughs> so she knew you. Yeah, and I'm glad you got the grace that you deserved. Um, okay. Uh, if I, I have this fantasy that one day I will be able to raise the money and build a Hall of Fame on the National Mall dedicated to staffers. So if I were able to build this Staffer Hall of Fame, who would you nominate?
1: Who would I nominate? I would nominate uh, Lorraine Miller, who was um Speaker Pelosi's uh, senior advisor when I was um when I was working in the House? And Lorraine was, you know, she also happened to be head of the um, d c. chapter of the NAACP as well. But I knew her because she was always, you know, a rock of steadiness, was wise. You know, she listened a lot, didn't say a lot until she needed to. Um, but I, one, one of my exchanges with her, I remember, and it was when, um, you know, we were planning the memorial for Stephanie Tubbs Jones, uh, in, internally in Congress. And she had come to talk to me because there were some people that I, I was being petty and I did not want to invite to the memorial to sit up in the first rows, um, because they were people that Stephanie did not like. And Lorraine came and talked to me and, um, And I grudgingly, you know, agreed. And she looked at me and she said, you think we're being a-holes, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yes, I do. And she (laughs) said, I understand. And we left it at that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that type I, of candor is important.
1: It's important. But I love her to death and, um, and we're still in touch. And, you know, she's doing well in, in you know, in her, her new roles.
0: <laughs> yeah, she is fantastic. That is a great nomination. Um, I'm going to end this in- interview with a reference to something you mentioned at the beginning, and it's, but it is a question to you. You talked about your family's history and how they came to Cleveland. And it was part of a migration— that is hugely important in American history of black Americans from the south to cities across uh, the, the northern part uh, of our country. And it is almost untaught. You know, I came to learn of it as an adult when I read uh, The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, the New York Times bestseller. I've also read her book Cast, both of which she had just taught me a lot about American history and sociology, and our own perceptions. Uh, what is a book that you would recommend? Um, I, I read next, and our listeners uh, read.
1: Oh, I am um, one of my favorite um, books, and I've, um, I've I've purchased it for a lot of, of folks. Um, well, I've got two. One of them is Getting to Yes, you know, which I, I seem to have bought for people by the truckload. But I think my favorite book is this one which is I keep on my desk and it's Talent, Talent is overrated by Jeff Colvin uh, because it talks about the importance uh, first of all it's it's what really separates world- class performers from everybody else. but it's also it's about the value of practice um, and it you can have native ability, but you won't go anywhere with it. Unless you develop that ability, and if you have less ability than other people, then if you practice and you are dedicated in your tasks and becoming an expert, you're really going to succeed because of that, that you know, practice, repeat, and refinement um, of your skills.
0: I love it. That is such a good recommendation. I have not read that. I will. Patrice Willoughby, thank you. Um, I am such an admirer of yours, and I so appreciate your making time uh, for this interview today and all of the wisdom that you shared with us. Truly, thank you.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffershow on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.